Well, good morning and welcome on this absolutely beautiful morning. It's great to see you as well as the sunshine and the cooler temperatures. We're in a series that we're calling Be the Countercultural Church. And what we're doing is we're using the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians to try to assess how Paul encourages that group of Christians to live counterculturally, live by a different set of values, live with different priorities, and how that will work out in the details is kind of what he's been writing to them about. Well, we're looking at a topic last week and this week that maybe is the most countercultural at all. We're looking at the topic of love. And last week, we spent all of the morning looking at what love is. And we used Paul's definition from 1 Corinthians 13, and we talked a lot about love is relaxed and love is beneficial. Love is patient and love is kind. See, you only have to live with a message for like 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and you can forget it and tune out if you don't want. But I have to live for like a whole week or more with what I say. And whenever I talk on a topic, I'm always somewhat nervous because I know whatever I'm planning to talk about, God's going to kind of do some weird stuff in my life. And so this past week has been an absolute mess when it comes to patience. I'll give you uh, one story and some incidents from this morning. I kind of felt at home, though, because I received a call from a friend, and he said, uh, he and his wife were going to get ice cream and kind of drove to this ice cream place. And they pulled in, but there were all these cars in front. In fact, they were almost back to the highway and immediately said, well, let's go somewhere else. And his wife said, don't you listen to what Charles said? Charles says, be patient. To which he said, he said, be patient, not stupid. Wait behind all these cars. I can kind of relate to that. So I'm thinking of, uh, we're moving on to what love is not today. But when we're talking about what love is, love is patient, love is relaxed, love is beneficial. And what you know, four or five different things happened from my house to church this morning that were driving me nuts. So I get to uh, pull into the Starbucks in Giant, and I'm behind this person. We have the green arrow. I guess she didn't notice we had the green arrow. Even though it was right in front of her windshield, she's sitting there, a car's way, until the green arrow no longer is a green arrow. She then proceeds to wait. I'm saying, be patient, be relaxed, be relaxed. A car's coming. I think the car was on the other side of Silverdale. She's waiting for the car to come. I'm doing all I can to not honker. Eventually, we turn. I go into Starbucks. I'm walking up to the door. I get my app on, but I can't get the app to work. It's asking for all this other kind of information. What's your login? What's your password? I don't know any of that stuff. To log. So I go up to the counter and said, can you help me? I can't get my app to work. Everybody's having that trouble this morning. I guess you have to pay cash. I have to go out to the car to get cash. I go back. Now when I come back in, I'm four people deep in the line. I was up front when I started this adventure. But the good news is the guy in front of me must have felt sorry for me because he bought my coffee. And then I come here. I can't get into the building. Patience, love is I wasn't real relaxed. How's your week going with being relaxed? How's your week going with being beneficial? Well, good. We're moving on from what love is. This morning, we're going to talk about what love is not. And you know what, I've been thinking about that a lot these past few days, because we don't really need the context of Corinth to show us what love is not. Just watch the news. Go online. Read the news sites this morning already. Look around at our country. Here you see what love is not. Love is, you don't see relax, you don't see relaxation, you don't see people seeking to be beneficial. You see unrest that becomes anger. You see different groups that have felt exploited and abused. 
they then kind of, and then other people respond. And before you know it, we have volatile clashes of violence and everything that Paul discusses in Corinth, we seem to see exponentially all around us. And so I guess I want to say to all of you, just like Dave prayed this morning, we do need to pray for our country, pray for healing, unity, peace. But can I also tell you something else? Let's not just pray for those things. Let's be agents of love. Isn't that what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 13? Don't just pray for healing. Be part of the healing process. Don't just pray for unity. Seek to live in unity with people close to you, people you come in contact with, people that are different than you. Live in a sense of peace, relaxation, living a beneficial kind of life. You know, I don't have to tell you, neither political party, no educational system, psychological theory is going to solve this. Only the gospel can solve this. And that's what Paul is getting to in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says love is, love is relaxed and love is beneficial. And then he goes on to talk about a long series of things that love is not. And so maybe it's uh, providential that we get the love is not talk today because we're certainly living in a world where love is not, let's start by being those that pray for love and unity, healing and peace, and let's be agents of healing, love, unity, and peace too. Well, we need to start with the context, because the Corinthian context is rather similar to ours. In fact, you may not have the luxury, but if you would take some time and read through 1 Corinthians, just if you can, do it in one sitting or two, you will discover that Paul talks about the same three problems over and over and over and over and over again. He kind of hammers the problems over and over and over again. So uh, I, I got a couple references on the screen. You can jot them down and check this out later. First of all, all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now remember, in the first four chapters, he's laying the foundation. In chapter 3, he begins to talk about the problems. And here what he says. Brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but it's people that are still worldly. They've got to understand, they're fighting words. He's writing to a group of Christians, but he's saying, you guys are living in opposition to Christ. You're living in opposition to the gospel. You're living on the world's team rather than Christ's team. They're fighting words. You're infants in Christ. Remember that morning, Carlos called us all a group of big babies. That's what he says. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are still worldly. The first thing he continually says is, jealousy and envy are part of the cause of all that quarreling and all of those factions. There's jealousy and envy underneath it. You see what other people have, you want it, you don't want them to have it. Jealousy and envy, that's part of the engine driving the quarreling and fighting. A few chapters, or a few verses later at the end of chapter three, here's what he says. No more boasting about human leaders. First problem, envy. Second problem, boasting. Notice envy and boasting are things that we do. We're jealous of people. We want what they have. We're envious of people. We don't want them to have it. And then we boast about ourselves, trying to make ourselves feel better. And then there's a third one. But knowledge pops up while love builds up. Envy and boasting are things we do. Puffed up 
is who we are. You know, Paul uses the word boast more than anywhere else in the New Testament. I think it's used like 37 times in the New Testament. Well over half those times are in First and Second Corinthians. He's writing to a church that has a boasting problem because they've got an envy, jealousy problem. Why? Because they're puffed up. Now, that, that, that really is kind of a, an interesting word, but you know what it means. The idea is you're like a balloon. You know, if a balloon's not inflated, it's nothing. Oh, but a balloon sure looks impressive once you fill it with air, right? If you fill it with helium, it kind of floats around and it looks so impressive and large, but it's just full of hot air. They're puffed up, just full of, full of themselves, we would say. Or how about this one? Some of you think of food. Cotton candy, a puffed up kind of food, right? How much more disappointing can you be than cotton candy? You think you're getting this big thing, you're gonna be filled for a week. You put it in your mouth, it disappears. That's being puffed up. Nothing really there. It looks impressive, but there's no substance. Lots of sizzle, no substance. Uh, when I was thinking about puffed up this week, I was reminded of a, a fishing trip years ago. Um, I had a friend named Danny and I was trying to persuade him to go to rehab. I finally convinced him to go to rehab. He's a big fisherman under these terms. Charles, I'll go to rehab. And if I graduate, you have to take me fishing. I agreed. Little did I know the fine print said I have to take him fishing in Florida. Uh, so I get together with two friends and we take Danny fishing in Florida. So we have this boat, we go out on the boat and uh, we did catch a lot of fish. It was a lot of fun. But before we caught the fish we, we, we were going to eat, we caught a bunch of them, um, like blowfish. You ever see these things? Like, you know, you pull them out of the water. You think they're gigantic. Like they're like beach balls, right? But once they're deflated, it, it, it's, it's like bait. It's not even a fish you'd catch. But boy, they can fill themselves up with air. So we were kind of joking. We'd catch the blowfish. We'd throw them on the boat because we didn't want to re-catch them. And they'd all kind of deflate. They'd be laying there. Well, uh, long story short, I'm packing to come home. Just had an overnight, but I'm pack I can't get all my stuff in my bag to come home. Well, I squeeze it all in. I got to carry stuff and I get on. When I get home, I discover that Danny had taken one of the large blowfish, had had it inflated, had it sealed and like preserved and put it at the bottom of my luggage. And so now I can't fit my stuff in because this giant the blowfish covered with some kind of enamel is in the bottom of my thing. That's the problem in Corinth. We don't have to look in Corinth. You notice that around here? People uh, puffed up, full of themselves, but there's not substance, just a lot of sizzle, lots of boasting going on, lots of jealousy. And that's the problem. Well, that's Paul's context that he's writing to in Corinth. That's our context too. Well, those are the problems. What's the solution? Okay, well, let's uh, check this out. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. And let's read the solution. We already read it, but let's read it again. And remember, our goal for these two weeks is to rescue this passage from the romantic captivity of weddings and deliver it from a romantic balcony to a battleship, which is where real love happens. All right, so here we go. Beginning of verse four. Love is patient. There's a solution. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, 
Love perseveres. That's the solution. In other words, here's what Paul says. You're all living in Corinth, surrounded by envy and boasting and people that are puffed up and you're puffed up. Here's the solution. Do the opposite. Whatever you think you should do, do the opposite. All right, any Seinfeld fans out there? Seinfeld fans? I was never a big Seinfeld fan, but the one episode is classic. It's called Do the Opposite, right? And it stars George Costanza. Remember George? Now, George is like a loser. He can't do anything correctly, lives with his parents, doesn't really have a job, kind of floats around, trying to be impressive. He's trying to be envy and boastful and puffed up, but there's not a whole lot there, right? Well, anyway, he wanders into the diner once, and Elaine's there, and Jerry are there, and he's been, oh, my life's a mess. Every decision I make is wrong. I don't have any money. I don't have a girlfriend. I live with my parents. My life's a mess. Anyway, the solution is, George, do the opposite. If, you're like, if you can't make a good decision, whatever you think you should do, just do the opposite. Well, for the rest of the episode, he does that. He gets a beautiful woman. He winds up making a lot of money. Just do the opposite. That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. If you want to know how to love, if you want to know what it means to live counterculture, do the opposite. Whatever you think you should do, do the opposite. Don't be envious. Don't be boasting. Don't be puffed up. Do the opposite. Just like Georgia Costanza, do the opposite. Well, let's uh, talk about what the opposite looks like. First of all, do not envy. Now, I kind of hinted at this, but let me, uh, let me make it plain. Envy is not just a sin. Envy is the opposite of love. Remember how we defined love last week, right? Love is relaxed, patient. Love is kind. It's beneficial, seeking to build up others. What does envy do? Envy is the opposite of love. It's not beneficial. It's not seeking to build up others. It's seeking to tear them down. It's not jealousy. It's not looking at someone and just wanting what they have. It's worse than that. It's wanting them to not have it. So uh, do you ever struggle? I mean, thankfully, we live in a country no longer struggles with envy, right? Um, I'm like a world-class envier. So uh, in case you didn't realize, I'll let you in on a secret. I envy people that are better athletes than me, that are better looking than me, better preachers than me, better pastors than me, better parents than me. And if you're here this morning and you don't envy, I envy you for not envying people. Um, I mean, my life is full of envy. Envy is all over the place in my life. And so it isn't just that I want what other people have. If I can't have it or I think, I don't want them to have it either. Love is, or love is the opposite of envy. Love wants to build up. It's beneficial. Envy wants to tear down and cause other people to not have it either. Now, here's a kind of a dilemma. I've, I've been wrestling with this. I read a couple of months ago an article that, it was only tangentially about envy, but at one point, there was a comment in there. I went back and reread it. At one point, the author of the article said this. There's a fine line between critical thinking, being critical, and struggling with envy. And here's what he said. Those that you criticize the most are probably those that you envy. You critique then because that's part of your envy strategy, right? You're critiquing them to knock them down a few pegs. And you critique them with other people so that you think as they're being knocked down, you're being lifted up. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm a critic. I mean, come up and talk to me for 10 minutes. I can tell you everything wrong with you and everybody else. 
There's a fine line between critical thinking, being critical, and struggling with envy. So maybe a little test for you this week. Think about those you're critiquing. To whom are you critiquing them? And is there somehow some envy, which is the opposite of love, underneath that critique? That's pretty convicting, isn't it? But then there are other people, think about this, there are other people that we never envy, never. I I think I speak as a typical parent. I never envy my kids. If my kids would have a windfall financially, I would rejoice, hoping they'd give me some. I would never be envious if they had giant financial success. I would never be envious if they got big promotions. I'd never be envious if they were getting accolades and awards. I would never be envious of my kids, my grandkids. In fact, if they're succeeding, I'm going to have a sense of pride, right? Because they're connected to me. They're kind of in the group, right? They're in the family. But I envy rivals. I envy those outside the group. So maybe the solution, again, comes back to part of that gospel thinking. The solution is you can't sit down and try to make yourself not envy. That'll never happen. Maybe we need to seek to invite rivals into the family. Maybe we need to change our outlook so that they're not rivals, enemies, competitors. They're now part of the family And if we can really believe that and live that, we would celebrate their successes rather than want to pull away their successes. Envy. Love does not envy. Envy is the opposite of love. Uh, Here's the second one. Love is not irritable. Are you irritable? Um, I didn't have to raise your hand, but are are you? let, let, Let me explain a little bit. You know, the Bible doesn't, Paul doesn't say here, don't ever get angry. Anger is more like an emotion. Sometimes you get angry. Irritability, being irritable is a mood. Kind of lasts a lot. It's kind of this simmering underneath. It's simmering underneath of all the stuff and you remember those things really well. Yeah, irritability kind of sits under the surface and I'm linking together like love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is not self-seeking. Oh, that's, that's all that irritability thing. Now, here's the truth of the matter. My guess is you have a lot of stuff in your life to be irritable about, and almost always those irritations are people. You have a list, right? Your unreasonable boss, that woman who won't turn left when she has the green light, the people that make you wait, the people that critique you, the preachers that preach too long and you can't get home and you're sitting out in the hot sun. We have lots of things that irritate us, right? Love is not irritable. Now, here's a... Here's the solution to this one. You ever notice that we really are record keepers? So Paul says, keep no record of wrongs. Notice he, does, he didn't say, don't keep records. We all keep records. I mean, our brains are like filing systems, right? In fact, I'd be willing to bet, if you're flipping through the stations or if you certainly look for different parts of a movie, you can almost recall word for word what happens in those sections of the movie, right? So for example, I can uh, those movies I can play, I'm your Huckleberry as he meets, uh, I, I can do that. I can play in my mind Bronx Tale, now you can't leave. 
I mean, I love that stuff, right? I mean, I can think of Super Bowl 52, and I can think about the score and the Patriots losing and Brady sulking. And I, I mean, I love those tapes, right? I can rewind the tape and play them over and over. And I have lots of good memories, and I can replay the movies. But we don't only keep records of movies, do we? We keep records of what other people do and say. And my problem is I'm a master archivist of stuff that people say bad about me, people that mistreat me, people that are negative. That stuff is on ready file. And I rehearse it. And I can be alone all by myself at night in bed. And I can play the tapes. And I can get ticked off all by myself. You know what the solution is to keep no record of wrongs? Notice Paul didn't say don't keep records. He said don't keep record of wrongs. Keep record of rights. How about that? So when you find your mind, like I often do, kind of going to the negative side and you're keeping record of wrongs, here's some additions to that. There is a good God who created everything that exists. And that good God who is omnipotent and omniscient loves you in an irrational, unconditional, crazy way. He loves you so much that he didn't just say it, and he didn't just say you beautiful things to look at. He gave you his son, the treasure of heaven, so that you could be reconciled to him. What sin and our lack of love, what our envy and our irritability has caused the separation, Jesus comes, pays the price for our failures, gives us his record, so now we can be ushered back into his presence forever. He now promises to never leave us or forsake us ever, regardless of what, of what we do or say. Heaven and new heavens and a new earth promise that can never be taken away. And from here to home, he promises his mercies will meet us every morning. And yeah, there'll be challenges and there'll be difficulties, but he always tethers those things and he always parcels those things carefully so they grow us and don't destroy us. Just keep a record of some of those things. I mean, I could go on, but you want to be out of here sometime soon. Keep a record of those things. Don't keep a record of wrongs. Keep a record of rights. Keep a record of God. Keep a record of Jesus. Keep a record of the gospel. And when you keep those records, you'll discover that you'll be increasing in love and decreasing in envy and irritability. You can't just say, I'm going to stop envying. I'm going to stop being irritable. You can't do it. Some of you are too crotchety. That'll never happen. What you've got to do, keep a record of rights. Remind yourself of who God is. Remind yourself of who Jesus is and the mission he came on. Invite those people that are rivals into the family, into a relationship with Christ and into your heart, into your life. And as you do those things, I kind of think Paul's right that we won't just be praying for healing and peace and love. We'll be agents of healing, peace, and and love. A long time ago, I forget where it was, I, I read about a, a father of a four-year-old who just happened to be a psychologist. He showed up one day to his four-year-old's um, classroom. And he goes in, and he was somewhat horrified as a psychologist because they, they don't like, you know, hard things and people who are bad guys and good guys. He was kind of horrified because the teacher had an interesting game that they were going to play. It was called Bust the Balloon. 
And here's how he played it. Every one of the fourth graders had a balloon that tied around their ankle. And the goal of the game was to run around and pop everybody else's balloon, but not let anybody pop your balloon. That was the goal. And he's sitting there horrified, right? And just as you might expect, I mean, they're stomping on balloons. A couple kids committed balloon suicide, right? They knew they'd lose. They stomped on their own balloon. But they're kind of, and the, and the bullies in class, the biggest, the meanest, they're, they're hiding. They're kicking kids, right? They're stomping on feet and hands and heads and balloons. And Well, eventually, as you might guess, the biggest, meanest, baddest kid he won. But then to his horror as he was leaving, that same teacher was going to play the game with the special needs students, particularly those with intellectual deficiencies. And he just shook his head wondering how this would go. But in a matter of minutes, he started to smile. And before it was over, he had tears running down his cheeks. He said, because they all understood the game, but in that class, they weren't rivals. They were all family and friends. And so they went, they went arm in arm, stomping on each other's balloons. The one girl held her balloon while the kid smashed it. Then he held his and let she, her smash his. I think love is, isn't like the first experiment. Love's like the second experiment. If we would learn to keep a record of rights, keep a record of the gospel in our head, play those tapes over and over and over, all of a sudden our reservoir for love would deepen and we'd have more resource so that we'd be able to invite our rivals into the family so that when they succeed and get accolades and praise and success, we would really be able to rejoice with them and celebrate with them, just like the second class. Sad to say, we often resemble the fourth grade class. Time for a switch, don't you think? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for uh, this hard chapter. Yeah, we can smile when we hear it read at weddings, and we can ooh and ah when we see the bride and the groom kissing and leaving the auditorium or the reception. And yet, Lord, that wasn't Paul's context. Paul's context wasn't a wedding of love. It was an environment of envy, jealousy, boasting, and people that are full of themselves. And he speaks these words of love to that context. Lord, that's the context we live in. Lord, help us to live a relaxed kind of life, knowing that you're in control, and as we follow you, the pressure's off. Live a life of benefit, seeking to build up others, not a life of envy, seeking to tear them down. Help us live a life not of irritability, but of love. Help us not to show and exhibit the values of our culture. Help us to pray for our country, for healing, for unity, for love, for peace. And help us to be agents of healing, unity, peace, and love as we remind ourselves of the gospel and continue what Jesus started. We pray in his name.